You know what? That's remarkable. Um, that doesn't happen just by accident. You see a young guy like that decide to, uh, to first off embed the word like that in his soul and then be brave enough to stand in front of us as friendly as you are. Um, that's pretty significant. Let's, let's, let's pray over that, that little guy. You know, Lord, um, something deep and profound is stirring there. And we ask God that it would take deep root. And Lord, what, for, for whatever purpose, you would shape that little heart to be able to, to grasp your word in those ways. We pray, Lord, that it would be multiplied. And whether those words come out in a simple little short verse or in a whole bunch of them strung together, we just to thank you, Lord, that the word of God is going deep into our children's heart. Let it prosper there in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. <laughs> so um, um, I, I have a hard time sometimes staying on game because I'm easily distracted. And um, if you've ever been in a meeting that I lead, which I've led a lot of meetings over the years, I'm my own worst enemy. We can take off on all of these silly rabbit trails, I call it that, but we just kind of get lost. And after a while, some loving, wise, mature person says, hey, get it, get your act together. There's a reason you're here, Terry. And um, I found myself in that circumstance this week in my studies, but nobody was there to, to, to get me back on track, okay? So um, I went on this journey, and, you know, today's the 30th, so in Proverbs 30, you're going to get a proverb out of me, but, um, which I like to always start with a proverb from the date. But there was nobody there to get me on track. Some Proverbs, you know, you expect to get into the book of Proverbs and it's going to be one-liners. You know, there's a lot of good one-liners in the book of Proverbs, but there's a lot that are several. And there are some other um, books, uh, some other Proverbs, some of the other chapters, which are a little interesting. Chapter 30 is one of those. It's actually a conversation. And if you understand, once you understand that it's a conversation between two people, it starts to make more sense. Um, and this is one that's uh, a conversation. And uh, its authorship is not clear. Some people say it's Solomon. Some say it's not. Anyway, um, so I'm going to give you a, a couple of fun ones out of chapter 30, but they're not the ones I picked for the day because the ones that I picked officially for the day just didn't have a, you know, it needed, needed to, to be different. So, so here's some fun ones. Proverbs uh, 30, the verse 2. Surely I am more stupid than any man. <laughs> I chose not to use that one. Or this next one. <laughs> I'm the most stupid person there is. I have no understanding. Okay, that's not much better. And um, I see all of our children are pretty much out of here. So this next one is kind of a, you know, Alfred Hitchcock could have written this next one. But believe it or not, you can look it up. This is verse 17. If you make fun of your father and refuse to obey your mother, the birds of the valleys will pluck out your eyes and the ravens will eat them. <laughs> wow. Okay. I didn't pick that one either, but I just couldn't. I didn't have maturity not to share it with you today. So, so here's, here's today's proverb, verse 33. If you churn milk, you get butter. If you hit someone's nose, it bleeds. If you stir up anger, you get into trouble. So uh, we've been talking for a while about guardrails, and I suppose as we get closer to the end of this series, which is this week and next week, um, our worship team will be glad because we've, I've taken up all this real estate with this visual deal here, and I'm, I'm grateful for the grace that you've shown me to share your, your area up here. Um, and we've been talking about guardrails for a while because, you know, you, I've noticed that they're, they're everywhere. They're all over the place. You don't really pay attention to them, and yet... Um, when you need them, you're really glad they're there. there. There are several interesting things that you can observe about them. They're built in a safe area of the roadway. Um, you don't need them till you need them. And what they do is they create a small accident on purpose, and that's good. It's a trade-off. You trade off a small accident um, rather than the big accident down at the bottom of the canyon or whatever happens to be. There's something way worse on the other side. So it's okay to get bumped and scraped. You have to kind of build it while things are safe. You can't build it while you're going over the edges. There's a lot of analogies there that are really helpful. The point, obviously, is that we, that we can take this concept of traffic safety and take that imagery and transfer it into the way we live our lives. So what would it be like if we were to build guardrails in our lives? And uh, so we've defined a guardrail um, in that context, did I jump ahead, Jan? I did. Um, we, we defined it in a personal, it's a personal standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. In other words, it's something that you and I think, okay, I'm going to build some guardrails in my life, and so if I get a little bit off track 
and I start to bump it up against them, it triggers my own conscience, and I decide, oops, back away from that. So that's what this message, uh, this series has been about. Because I think, as I look back in my life, some of the areas of my biggest regret, had there been a guardrail in place, I probably could have avoided a lot of grief. And I think that's probably true for all of us. The thing about, uh, about guardrails, too, is that our culture will not help us with this. Okay, culture is not going to help you with this. They, they'll pretend to help you, you know, just say no to drugs, that kind of... I mean, they'll pretend to help you. Friends don't let friends drive drunk, right? I don't know what that means. I don't know if it works, um, but um, I don't think any of my friends let me drive drunk, and I'm glad for that, so... You do have a sense of humor, right? Because, okay... <laughs> okay, so I, I just think culture is not going to help us with that. In fact, culture does the, the opposite. It baits us right on the other side. It says, hey, I mean, I don't know how many credit card offers you get per week, but if I accepted 1% every year, I would be in huge consumer debt. I mean, I get several of them every week. And they bait you say, come on, come on, easy credit, credit. If I did it, and then if I was to actually act on it, I'd find myself down there, and then the world would slap me down saying, you know, you're financially irresponsible. What are you thinking? I'm just doing what you told me to do. I took your credit. I mean, culture is not going to help us with that. So over the last uh, number of weeks, we've t- tackled several different subjects. We've talked about friendships. We've talked about alcohol. We've, we've talked about children. We've talked about sex. Today, I want to talk about money. And um, I, I, first off, I'm going to say, okay, hold up a minute before you shut down on me on the topic, okay? Because this, this particular topic is one where the church really gets an unfair rap. I'll talk about that a little bit later. You know, in my world, in Terry's world, uh, as a pastor, when people come for counseling, I'd say the majority of the time when people come for counseling, there's two things they want to talk about, sex or money. Hey, um, Terry, my wife and I need to come in and talk to you about some sex or money. You know, hey, I've got a friend who's got this problem in his life. Can he need to see a pastor? Sex or money. My teenage son needs to talk to you. Sex or money. Sex. Um, <laughs> but the majority of the time, people come. Now, it's not always true. It's not always true. But it's a significant number. It's a significant amount of the time. It, it's about that topic or one of those two topics. And it, it's... At, at the same time, our culture wants to completely dismiss anything the church has to say about those two topics. They say, oh, the church, all they care about is getting your money, and they're just against sex. That's what the culture says about the church, right? They completely dismiss that, yet at the same time, a huge proportion of our problems, that's home central for them. So... Today I want to talk about helping you establish some guardrails concerning your money. And, uh, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're a student of the Word of God, you'll find this topic is all over in the New Testament and the Old Testament. The Word talks about money all over the place. Why is that? Well, we'll explore that a little bit. I, th- I, think, I think there are some things that we can rule out. And I will just make this blanket statement for you, and I'll develop it as we talk about this today. God's chief competition for your heart, for your loyalty, for your devotion, is not the devil. The average person's real internal struggle that's going on is this, when it comes to God, do I surrender myself? Do I allow my dependence to rest upon God? Or do I continue to place my my trust about my tomorrows? in my capabilities to provide for myself, my pursuit of wealth, my pursuit of, of, of daily bread. This is how Jesus addressed this about 3,000 years ago. Famous speech he gave called the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus talking. He says this, uh, Matthew 6, starting in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. You and I think, hey, I don't have a master. I'm an American citizen. I, I, that's how we think. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot love both God and money. Jesus wants you to recognize that there's something that seems incredibly obvious, but you've got to sort this out and identify it. There's a tension going on within you about who or what is going to be the master of your life. 
And I think that we have a natural tendency to want to put our trust in what we can control, what we can do, what we know for certain. On the end of the month, there's going to be a check in a in an envelope sitting in a place that I can pick it and I go to the bank and they're going to let me buy my tuna fish. I'll put my trust in that any day. That's what our tendency is. And it fuels something in us that wants to control those circumstances. So we tend to do that. The problem is that where you tend to put your trust, that's the place that you allow to master you. That's the place that you begin to serve because you put your trust there whatever that that represents for you. So there's this tension. And God wants you to know several things. He loves you. He wants you to treat him as a loving father. He knows what's best for you. But beyond that, he wants your undivided attention. He wants your devotion. He wants to be the master over your, your, your life. Because he knows, and he knows this. God knows that his chief competition that he faces for your devotion is your stuff, your pursuit of wealth. That's why there's so much in the Bible that talks about money. And as we talk about now going down this road, since we're talking about figurative, uh, in figurative walking down guardrails, as you, wa- as you go down the middle of this financial road, there's a ditch on both sides. And we need a guardrail to keep us off of both sides because it's a problem on both sides of that road. One side of the road is, uh, has to do with consumption, and the other side has to do with hoarding. We'll talk about those two. Um, there's a lot on the TV about both, and you can see that, but I'm going to use different dis- definitions maybe than what you might expect. Consuming means that everything that comes your way, you consume it. All the dollars that come in become things in my house or a car or my golf clubs or my shoes or my whatever. Every dollar that comes in becomes something. That's consuming. And if you consume and consume and consume and consume, pretty soon you'll be this model poster child for consumer debt. And that's where consuming will take you. The other side of the ditch is hoarding. What if? What if? What if? What if? What if I lose my job? What if I have a health care problem and I can't go to work? What if? What if? What if? So what I'll do the what if is I'll start storing stuff up. I'll protect for my tomorrows. I will manage with my silos full of stuff. For my needs for tomorrow. That's what if, what if. That's the, uh, the, the hoarding side of it. Here's the problem with consuming and hoarding. They have some things in common with each other. Both of them are very self-focused. Both live as if there's no God. Both are really fueled by the same problem, which we hate. And we don't like to say this word. It's the G word. They're both fueled by greed. Greed's almost impossible to see in the mirror. I've mentioned that before. I don't have anybody ever show up and say, hey, Pastor Terry, would you please pray for me? Because I struggle with greed. Nobody does that. In fact, we have nice labels that we say about ourselves that are sanitized, you know, that would describe our circumstances. We say about ourselves that, you know, oh, I'm careful, or I'm a good planner, or um, um, I'm a saver. Okay, I get all of that. Because it's really hard to see in the mirror. Jesus talked about a lot of it, and, and uh, we're going to read some of his words today about this. Uh, but I'm going to give you some summaries. This is a paraphrase. Paraf- I'm paraphrasing. Jesus basically would say that greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. An assumption that it's for my consumption. That's too hard to say. I'm, in, in other words, if anything comes to me, it's for me. That's what Jesus says greed is. And, and you can be greedy whether you are loaded rich or whether you have nothing. You don't have two nickels to rub together. You can be greedy either way. My consumption now, greed, you know, greed is if anything comes to me, it's for my consumption. My consumption now, that makes me a consumer, or my consumption later, that makes me a hoarder. It's almost like you can't win. If it comes to me, it's for me. The big problem is that it leaves you living as if there is no God. It doesn't mean you don't believe in God. It just means that accumulation is your chief pursuit. And, you know, you love God. You go to church. You might even respect the Bible. But when it comes down to any big decision, the thing is, it equates to, you say, well, where's this going to leave me financially if I do that? Am I going to be able to get what I want or what I think I need for my future if I go there? And if that's your chief concern... 
these questions about your finances, that means that you are ultimately being fueled by greed. And if you are fueled by greed, that means you're living as if there's no God. Until there's a problem. And um, that's, here's something that's true about most people, but especially about people who are greedy. You know, when you hit a big, huge bump financially, who's the first person you invite into the circumstances? Right? <laughs> I mean, how many of us, don't raise your hand, how many of us have ever prayed a prayer and said, oh, Lord, um, I need to sell my house. Could you get involved here? Or I've got to buy this car and I need to figure out a way. Or, um, Lord, it would really help if I could get this promotion or this guy would hire me because I could really use a paycheck. I mean, how many of us have ever uttered something like that to the Lord? Um, and so here's what happens. For most of us, I don't know if most is accurate, but for a lot of us, probably for most Americans, God becomes our financial backup plan. We say this to God. Now, we don't, we're not quite this direct, but this is what we're saying to God. Hey, God, sit. <laughs> sit. Come, heal. Stay. Good God. Oh. I'm so glad I was just mocking that because that just makes me feel like, um, I mean, that's really how we talk to God sometimes. We don't get that direct about it, but that's really what's going on. I mean, we've got a new poodle puppy in our house, not our poodle, my son's poodle. That little poodle can sit in three languages, English, (laughs) German, and Japanese. It's impressive. You know, the thing is this, we pray that way, but we may even just, we just go along with our life we make our money, we may even go to church, and we may even, you know, when the offering bag goes by, we might toss a $20 bill in there sometimes. You know, it's kind of like tipping God. And we say, hey, God, could you get involved now because I've got this major thing and I could really use your blessing. And we think, you know, maybe somewhere inside we think, well, maybe God could help us out. But here's what your heavenly father is thinking when those moments come. He doesn't want to help you. He wants to become the master. He wants to become the one who's central in your kingdom and in your place. And he knows that his chief competitor to do that is your stuff. In real blunt terms, God won't be anybody's backup plan. He wants to be the primary plan, which means... Which means you have to be able to break the power of greed in your life, whether it's huge or small. Now, you know, my role as a pastor here, um, you know, I'm functioning in that role, I think, today. I mean, it's common. I, I want to encourage marriages and I want to teach people to help them get a grasp for the Word of God and I want to help you be a better parent and I want to do all those things. And part of my role as a pastor is what I'm doing today, and that's to want to help you get this financial peace, this part of your life. Um, right. And, you know, here's, here's some good news for you. You know, your Heavenly wa- Father would, would, would want you to know something, that there's a key to breaking this power of greed, and um, it's really not about your money. It's about God ruling over your todays and your tomorrows. And it's not about a prayer. It's not about a one-time decision you make. This is about a simple habit. And if you develop the habit that we're going to talk about, you're going to, then you will keep broken. You will break and keep broken the power of greed in your life and all of the areas that it cascades into. This isn't just a financial decision, but it's a guardrail that lets the Heavenly Father rule in your life. And here's where it goes, with, here's where it goes to cut to the chase here. God knows if he can get to your checkbook... He can get to your heart because, these are the words of Jesus, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. That's where, we, that's where our heart is always, wherever our treasure is. Words of Jesus. It's what Jesus taught, and it's not, it sounds like it's, it is, but it's really not about money. It's about devotion, and the com- chief competitor for our devotion is our money. So here's the key, three very simple words. Give save, live. When you get paid, the first thing you do, the first check you write is you give it away. You give a percentage away. 
That's like saying to God, I am not going to be ruled by my stuff. I'm not going to be owned by the things I own. My hands are open, and the first percentage I'm going to give to you, Lord. Hoarding is, is, gets, comes into play here, and we say, but what if I get sick? What if I lose my job? For people who choose to trust the Lord in this, the Scripture makes all kinds of promises. They're wonderful. But basically, there's a piece that comes and says, you know what? I got this covered. I don't know how, but my king has this covered. He says, hey, I've got your back. Now, that's way paraphrased, but it's dependable, and it's the Word of God. Here's the deal about give, save, live. If you've got two out of three, your money has you mastered. And this is how you make sure that you are never mastered by the things you own. We taught our kids to tithe from when they were young. Um, Lisa and I, of course, do. And, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, but we taught our kids when they were really young. And, and um, so I don't know how I came up with all of these formulas. It just seemed right to me as a parent. But we taught our kids a tithe. 10% belongs to God. You give him, before you do anything else, you take 10% and you give it back to God. And we always, but we, we, we gave our kids more guidelines than that. We said, you tithe, you give 10%, and then everything else that's left over, cut it in half. Save half of it and blow the other half. Now, your kids need the opportunity to make financial mistakes. But you don't want them to make the mistake with everything they have, right? So they learn. That's how come you give them all this latitude. Plus, they don't have to do things like pay for insurance and mortgage payments and all those kinds of things. So when your kids save half and spend half, there's not huge risk involved. Plus the numbers, you know, the decimals are kind of way over there by the edge. There's not a lot of money involved. Well, at least there wasn't for my kids, maybe with your kids. So we would say to them, okay, give the Lord his. And we taught them the reasons why, and it's never been a question. It's never been a question. We started them at young, and we'll talk about the why for that. Um, but, but we taught them to tithe, to, to, to tithe and to save. And um, um, I asked Ben's permission to share this with you because in his very early teen years, he got a vision for something that he wanted that was fairly expensive. And so he started saving his money and um, doing what we said. And uh, I would say by the time he was um, in his early teens, he'd saved up enough money for, with partnership by dad but his goal was over a number of years, he'd saved up enough money, and we bought this telescope. And it wasn't just a, a department store telescope. He wanted this research grade. I mean, you'd be happy to have this if you were a professor at a university. And it cost us between four dollars and $5,000. And he came up with almost half of that money that he saved up. And, and I tell you that story because I watched the Lord step in and not hand Ben money. And I didn't come in and pretend I was God and force this to succeed in God's behalf, which is a parenting mistake, by the way. You don't need to make sure God succeeds with your children. You don't have to do that. That's a whole sermon off on its own, and I'm not going down that rabbit trail very far. Um, <laughs> but, but I watched the Lord provide to Ben opportunities where he could mow a lawn or do something here, do something there. He mowed a lawn for one neighbor, and he did, and it was nothing. I mean, it was hardly enough to justify running. The, it was a hardly a little tiny, but this guy was generous with Ben. And then at Christmas time, he said, here's an extra $50. Thanks for mowing the lawn. It'll help you with your Corvette. You know, he wasn't looking for a Corvette. He wanted a telescope. But the point was, I saw the Lord grant to Ben favor. I saw the Lord honor what he promises when we do what the Lord says to do with our money. So um, after years of saving, you know, his, his half was a little under a couple thousand dollars, which is a pretty big purchase for a 13 or 14-year-old. Um, and we got a lot of fun out of that. Um, it's now Ben's. He's now bought out my half interest in the telescope. And so I'm on my own when it comes to stargazing, but I'll get over it. I'm, I'm happy with that. Now, let's just take a minute or two, and let's delve into any suspicious hearts that might be here today saying, what's your real motivation, Pastor Terry? Why are you doing this? Okay, let's flop that out on the table. Let's talk about why would a guy like me teach his children to tithe? Because I have taught my kids the same thing that we're talking about. Why would I do that? Okay, let's, let's, let's examine some options. Okay, option number one, I teach my kids to tithe because once they give their dollar and 70 cents to the church, the church can control them and their money. 
aha, I want their dollar and seventy. The church wants their dollar and seventy cents. That's one option. You could go with that. <laughs> okay, it's an option. People think that way. They think this is about the church controlling. Here's another one. Maybe the church needs their dollar and seventy cents. I say to Ben and Rachel, "Hey kids, we need you to tithe because the church has to replace the light bulbs every once in a while." And uh, frankly, if you don't tithe, it's going to be dark at the church. <laughs> okay, I mean that's another reason people think that the pastors teach about tithing because the church needs the money. It's a separate issue. The church has a budget, and we'll t- I'm going to even talk about that a little bit today. Um, very small amount, but, but, but that's not the reason. I mean, well, you can conclude that's the reason. Here's another reason people think. Maybe they think that after the kids put their dollar and seventy in, and somebody goes in the back, and there's a back room somewhere, and people are counting the offering, and uh, afterwards, I sneak back there with a pillowcase, and I grab all those nickels and pennies and dimes, and I stuff them in my pillowcase, and I run out, stick them in the trunk of my car after church, and that's how I steal from the church. People think that too. It's not true, by the way. Just want you to know that, right? Okay. In fact, um, I don't ever count the offerings here. Closest I ever get to the offering personally is I see a report a couple of days later. Other people, groups of people, count it and deposit it in the bank. I mean, it's all done very carefully and above board. But people think that. So why do I teach my children to always tithe? What am I getting at? Is this some legalism thing? God says it in the Word. I don't get it. I don't like it. I don't understand it, but it says it, so i got to do it. Or is there something else going on here? I know this about me because I've learned it in the Word of God and because I know it's true about my heart. That the chief competitor right in here for God to rule is my stuff. And I think about my kids, and I think, man... Do I want them to spend their entire lives with a struggle between releasing and trusting and having faith in God in all areas of their lives? Or would I rather have them save their dollar and 70 cents? I mean, that sounds crass, but that's the kind of thinking as a parent. What is it that motivates me? I know this. The only way for me to, to help my children break the power of greed in their lives is to teach them from the very beginning to percentage give. Percentage giving, by the way, is not a great idea that somebody's come up with. It's the Word of God. God says the first tenth is mine. The first fruits. You know, I don't want to get into discussions about, well, is it before taxes or after taxes? I just say this. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. You know, I believe the first fruits is clear. But the point is this. I teach my kids because the only way you break the power of greed, I believe this, is to percentage give. And I want my kids' hearts to be safe and secure with the Lord. I know you feel that way about your children too. This is a great thing to teach your children because you will save them so much downstream grief if they get this early. I, I have two boys and one girl by, by our marriage, by our bio, biology. And I have another daughter by marriage. And I hope for another one. I don't even know who she is or where she is and why that hasn't happened yet. But I don't want my daughters ever, any of them, to feel like they have to compete for their husband's heart. They have to compete with, their, with his stuff, his golf clubs, his guy's night, his hunting. Tr- Man, I don't want them to ever feel like that, nor do I want any of my sons to ever compete with whatever it is that they would compete with the stuff that the girls might at some point become attached to. And that's what motivates me about my kids. We raise them to think you give first because it belongs to God, you save for the future, and then you live on what's left over, period. We teach them that. And then when you think that way, you can live your life devoted to God because money is stuff that you use. It's not something that owns you. I want my kids to get it because I'm convinced that it's the key to breaking the power of greed in their lives. And the only way to protect ourselves from greed is to set up these guardrails because it's on both sides of the road. And um, that's what I've taught my kids. It's what I'm teaching you. It's because what we've been doing for decades, we really believe it. Anyway, back to the Word of God. Let's get back in there again. Matthew 6, 24. Jesus is saying, um, no one can serve two masters. In other words, you're serving some master. We don't think of it that way, but we are. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted, which is a key word, 
to the one and despise the other. Jesus is about to tell us here that we're either devoted to God the Father or we're devoted to our stuff. And the best way you'll know and the best way to tell is to look at what you do with your money and with your stuff. Do you own it or does it own you? Does it serve you or do you serve it? Okay, he goes on to say, you cannot, in other words, you're not capable of serving both, even though we try. You can't be devoted to both God and money. Drop down a little bit to verse 31. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Or how will I get my kids through college? Or how will I pay my bills? Or um, can I afford a home? Or what are we? Or when, when will we? And don't lay in bed at night and allow money to steal your peace. I've done that before. Jesus is saying, I don't want money to steal your peace and your joy. I don't want it to consume your thinking. Because if money is front and center in your mind... That's what you're serving. And God doesn't want your money. He really doesn't want your money. <laughs> and he doesn't want you to be worried. So listen to where he goes now. It's going to get pretty direct here for a few minutes. Hold on. Buckle your seatbelts. He says, for the pagans run after. Same word as devoted to. Okay? They run after all these things. Okay, so if you're laying in bed at night and you're all consumed, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor, and you have all these what-if questions, what if this, what if that, money, money, money. Jesus says that if that's what's going on, that you're, that he's not calling you a pagan. Jesus is saying you're living life like a pagan. A pagan is someone who doesn't believe that God intervenes in human affairs. It's a, a pagan is someone who lives as if there's no God. You're living as if God doesn't know and he doesn't care. And this is about the heart. It's about devotion. It's about focus. It's not about money. This is not about money. If your whole devotion and your life orientation is around your stuff, you're living like a pagan. And a pagan is someone who doesn't believe that there's a God and that God intervenes the way he does. And the next thing that Jesus says is really the crux of the matter and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Them, all these things that we worry about. The reason that we worry, Jesus is, is on target here. The reason that we worry is because we we're not certain that God knows about our needs, and we're not certain that God cares about our needs. One of the big defining moments of your life as a Christian is do you believe that God knows and that God cares. That is a huge defining moment for people. It sets you on a course of faith and trust, or it sets you nose to nose with a rock cliff that you'll never get past. Do you believe? Because once you believe God knows and he cares, you've begun to change your orientation from God, sit, stay, to hey, God will help me. He's covered this. I can trust him. You know, I mean, realistically, do you think, don't you really know, don't you think God knows that you need a place to live? Don't you think that God knows you have bills to pay? Don't you think God knows you want to put a new coat on your child in the wintertime? Don't you think God knows school supply? Don't you think God knows those things and he cares about them? If your answer to that is really no, then... Factor God out of your finances and get busy. I mean, the problem is this. If that's the course you go on, that will force your children out to the periphery of your life because your focus will have to be on the accumulation of stuff, how you'll pay. It will force your spouse out to the periphery because your focus will have to be on those things. But the fact is, God does know. God does care. You know, I think probably many of us do this. Maybe all of us. I don't know. But what if you lived your life like you knew that you knew that you knew that he knows your need and he cares about your need and he's not going to leave you hanging? Jesus says, your heavenly father knows that you need them. He knows what you need. He knows what you want about your children. He knows those things. And what, here's what happens when you really believe that. You're okay. You may be in a raging storm, 
But somehow, with water coming over the gunwale, did I say that right? It's not gunwale like it looks, okay? Water's coming over. That was a little itty-bitty micro-rabbit trail, okay? But it's a microscopic one. You can have the waves dashing against the sides, and you're okay. How is that? How is it you can have peace in the middle of the storm? There's something of faith going on. If you believe, he knows and he cares. So Jesus, Jesus goes on, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom, which means his purposes, God's will, and his righteousness. In other words, his right way of living, his values, his justice, his mercy, his generosity, and all these things. What things? The things we worry about. The things I was talking about keeping you up at night before. All the stuff that we do need to consume, all of the debt we do need to get out of, all those things will be given to you as well. Wow. Did I just hear Jesus Christ make me a promise? Did I just hear the creator, the one who spoke the heavens and the earth and say, light be. Did he just say, seek first my kingdom and all this other stuff, I'll take care of it? Wow. That's amazing. And that's the issue right there. What's going to come first? That's why I say to you, give first, save second, and live on the rest. You know, you know typically, um, unfortunately, I guess to a degree, when is it that most people learn this? <laughs> they learn it when the bottom falls out. Went to Disneyland and there's something called the Hotel of Terror. <laughs> You know, the first time I went there, I looked at it, and I thought, I, just, I, don't, I don't need to go out on that. <laughs> Lisa says, I'm not doing it. She's not crazy about the upside-down weird rides, you know. She says, I'm not doing it. If you want to go, go do it. Knock yourself out. The first time I went, and I looked at that, and I, did, I just didn't do it. And I thought, you know, I'd be brave if she went with me, but I just didn't go. <laughs> you laugh, tough guy. Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. So the next time I came, I thought, I'm going. And I went, and I didn't know what to expect. But the floor falls out. I mean, it falls out, and gravity takes over, over and over and over. It's pretty fun, really. <laughs> because you trust Disney, right? But most people learn this about trusting God with their finances when the floor drops out. That's what it takes. And they come for help. And they come here and they say, hey, uh, this is a mess. Could you help us sort this out? And we'll say, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll help you sort this out. And, and we want to help you get your finances in order and so forth. So here's, here's what that means. This is not a matter of getting out of debt necessarily at first. And it's a matter of reprioritizing, about putting the right things first. And so what we want you to do is we want you to start giving. Seems, sounds like it's really self-serving. But we say, start with giving. And it's invariable. The answer is, I can't afford to give. Look at the pile of bills. I can't afford to give yet. And the answer is, well, but you couldn't afford to give before either. There's never going to be a time where you feel like this is not about giving. This is about you inviting God into a place where it's not just a fix it. It's not just help me and leave, sit, stay, come. It's about I'm reordering my life. It's about Give, save, live. And when people start to do that, give first, save second, I, I'm telling you, this is what happens every single time I've ever seen it. Their saving goes up and their spending goes down. They say, you know, these amazing things are going on. I'm giving away more money than I've ever been able to give away before. And get this, I'm contented with the things that I have. This, this thing that was never, ever satisfied in me, this thing that was never satisfied has calmed down. I don't know what's going on there, but there's something going on. And they say things like, my whole orientation towards money and wealth has changed. And it began when I started putting the right things first. I began to give a percentage, I began to save a percentage, and then I just managed to live off the rest. <sighs> you know, I know for many of us right now, our hearts would say, yeah, I'd really like to get on board with this. But there is this rolling, erupting list of reasons and explanations that are circulating in hearts right now in this room. But I want to say this to you. (laughs) 
I'm just immature enough to say, God's going, woohoo! No, but that's just a train, okay? All right. <laughs> you can do this. You might think you can't, but you can, and it's life-changing. And it's what your kids need to see in order to learn faith. It's what you need to model for them. And the reasons you don't is you're simply scared to death. It's scary. Some of you think, well, I, I've got, some of you are at one end of the spectrum. You've got a lot of money. And you think, man, I, I, gotta, you know, I should do this. I've got a lot of money. But if I write that check, that's going to be a huge number. And it's hard to do. And some of you say, you know what? <laughs> I don't have two nickels to rub together. How am I going to do that? If I only had a little bit more, then I'd be able to do that. And there's always a thing, okay, but I need a little bit more than what I have today. When we, today we had more than we used. I mean, there's always this place. This comes down to really becoming a matter of obedience. To not do it is to literally be disobedient to the Lord and say, hey, God, love you. I'll call you when I need you. And that might work with your dog. <laughs> you might even try it on your kids. might work once in a while with your kids. You can go ahead and try that on your spouse sometime. Let me know how that works out for you. <laughs> but the God we sing to, the God we worship, the God who sent his son to save us is just not going to agree to sit and stay. But if you rearrange your life this way, which is throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's like having an invitation to God to reorganize your financial world. And it's the key to your heart because this is how we were assembled by the Lord. The Lord knew this was going to be a challenge. The Lord knew this would become the flashpoint. He knew it. And you know what the Lord loves? The Lord loves faith and trust in Him. He, he loves that devotion. He loves where that relationship takes you and where it takes you together with God. So here's what you need to do. This, you know, this is the worst time for our economy, and it might be the worst time in your personal economy. And maybe you're already praying the financial prayers. But the next step is for you is maybe to reorganize your financial word world. You know, for me, the first thing I do is we write a 10% check to this local church. That's what the Word of God says. You give to your local storehouse. We do it right off the bat. Just like we've done to every church we've ever been a part of. And we say this, God, it's your kingdom first and my kingdom second. That's what that says. It's your kingdom first. Now, I want to give you a quick perspective about this church in case you have any questions at all. We're not a rich church. We're a healthy church. Okay, but I wouldn't say that the church is rolling in dough. But I want to give you a good report. Our first check every single month without fail is we give away. 10% is the starting point. There are other places we give money away. But this church gives away. Of all of the tithe money that comes in here, we give away just like we're asking you to do. And we save. We save. And I have, you know, I've had something that I've just kind of been waiting for the right time to tell you, and I think today's the right time to tell you. But last spring, the leadership here had made a decision. But last spring, we decided that um, the Lord would be honored and we were blessed. So we took money out of the savings account, and it was a big chunk of money, and we paid off the mortgage of this church. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. It was something that the leadership here had prayed about waited upon the Lord. We felt directed by the Lord to do it. And it was a lot of money. We could have spent it on ministry. We could have done all kinds of things with it. But we felt that this honored the Lord. And so we paid off the mortgage. And that was possible because we gave, we saved, and we lived on the rest. You know, um, our bills are paid every month here. So, no, I'm not preaching this because if you don't give me your dollar and 70 cents, the lights are going out. That's just not true. We, we, we can meet our bills here, and I'm very grateful. I'm grateful to be leading a group of people who largely understand this. I'm grateful for that. 
This message is not about the church's need for money. Although we have lots of vision. And if everybody actually tithe, I mean, statistically, it's kind of sad. It is statistically in the body of Christ, the number of people that actually tithe is disappointing, if you know that. And the truth is that if everybody tithe, we would have a lot of fuel to throw on the fire of ministry. Because I will tell you this, there's no lack of vision present. You know, I sat with a group of people that I call the church staff here. And um, by the way, being on the church staff has nothing to do with paychecks. It has to do with people that lead ministries. And there's probably a group of 18 or 20. And um, there's a lot of vision present. There is a lot of vision present for your children, for the youth in this community, for people in need. I mean, there's a lot of vision present. And I, I would just say that if, you know, every pastor dreams this way, right? Um, if, if everybody tithed, we would be fueling ministry like crazy, although we try to do it and we do do it here anyway. I just want you to know that the church is healthy and you haven't heard this message because we aren't paying our bills. That has nothing to do with this message. That's good, right? You know, I committed a long time ago as a pastor that I wouldn't stand in a pulpit and ask for money, preach for money because the church was in need. My motives are different than that. So this is not intended to raise resources for the kingdom, although it will, because people will respond. This is about Christianity 101. It's not about money. It's about obedience. So if you're a Christian, here's my gentle nudge. Come on. Come on. Step up in faith. Now's the time for you to maybe when you get home today, sit down with your spouse and say, hey, maybe we should kind of get on board with this. Maybe we should get this right. His kingdom first, my kingdom second. And then I will tell you this, God will help you with your debt and your contentment if you will establish this guardrail. Because this is the guardrail that protects us against greed and all of the things that go with it. Now, I'm going to say a couple things right now. We're about done here. Um, And I might be misjudged, but that's fine. I'm going to hang it out and, and say this because I think the Holy Spirit's planned on this moment. I think to some of you, this will be key to an area of healing in your life. Here's what I mean by that. There are people here today or hearing this message who carry with them scars, places of breakage in their lives, in their hearts, wounds. And so now, because of that past pain, You've wanted to build this protection and say, I don't know if I can trust because when I trust, when I expose, now I risk getting hurt again. And so you just don't take the risk at the cost of obedience. For some of you, this is a step you need to take so you can be healed from something that's ripped into you in the past. Sounds manipulative, and I'm sorry it's not. I just know the Holy Spirit signaled that to me while I was praying, while I was preparing for this weekend. And maybe for some, this is a key to healing broken relationships. Here's what I mean by that. For some of you, your spouse has been competing with your stuff. And greed is what's fueling that. For some of you, your children have been competing with your stuff for your love and your your affection. And this will break that. I say those things because I believe the Holy Spirit is already signaling that into some hearts in this room. And I've said this before when I've taught about giving. The word says, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. It says, bring the tithe into the storehouse. That means bring your tithe to your local church. If something in this place or in my leadership somehow causes that to become a concussion for you, then you need to find yourself in a church somewhere where you trust. But give. Get this together with your life. This is for you. I'm sharing this for you. If you can't tithe here, go somewhere where you can. But tithe your local storehouse. I tell you that because that's what you need to do to be healthy. God will take care of the details, and that's really good. There's no better place I can think of than to observe Hebrews 11.6, which says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It goes on to say some pretty cool stuff. 
including he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, today I've been very direct. Thanks for letting me do that. I love you, church, and I want you to experience a level of freedom and peace that I know in my life has come from this decision that we made a long time ago and never have looked back. You know, I could do calculations and say, gee, if I got back all that money after all those years, it'd be significant. (laughs) I wouldn't want it. I wouldn't want it because it came with something else that peace and the Lord's blessing and, and provision that can't be measured. So give, save, live. Let's pray. Well, Lord, um, this room's been quiet today. <laughs> and I think that's because the Spirit's at work. And I'm thankful, Lord, that, um, that you love us the way you do. I know this message falls into all kinds of hearts and all kinds of places. So, Lord, you have to unravel that. I believe, God, that while we're in your word, that it, that it doesn't return void, that it somehow goes to work, but that the Holy Spirit is doing all kinds of things in this room, completely unrelated to the message today. And in those areas, God, I just pray for the release of fruit, the release of life, for people who came here today needing to hear encouragement about a physical diagnosis from their doctor or they've heard distressing news from a loved one, I'm out of here, or they got a pink slip or what has happened in their life that's brought destruction. God, I just ask for mercy and peace, for love and provision and life in those circumstances. But God, for those that have heard these words today and now need something of heavenly courage, ignited, I pray. God, I pray for those in this church that would would exercise discretion about the spending of the church's fund, that there would be extraordinary stewardship at work. Lord, I'm grateful today that giving was your choice, God, and that you're a giving and loving God. In Jesus' name, amen.